on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. It is not universal, but it is very, very broad that fire was stolen. You know, in, in the West, we sort of know the story of Prometheus. Fire was, you know, taken from the gods and he was punished. But you find that all over, you know, rabbits stole it from fox. You know, this person stole it from a tree. You know, birds stole it from, you know, whatever. And there's this notion ancestrally, mythologically, that humans were never supposed to have fire and that we have it, but there's like a consequence to it. Like there was all this mayhem that went along with it. And I think that there's this ancestor remembering like, man, we're lucky to have this. And, and there's always a consequence when you get it when you're not supposed to. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Matthew Stillman, a dear friend who has been obsessed with how modern humans fit into an ancient world since forever. He has a wildly eclectic background, from highlighting the connection between food and culture as a programming executive on the Food Network. He co-produced an acclaimed documentary on the end of poverty. He even created a traditional skincare company called Primal Derma, delivered from his home in Harlem, New York. I first met Matthew as a scholar in the Orphan Wisdom School with Stephen Jenkinson, and we have spent many hours wondering about many things, from love to poetry and beyond. In our conversation today, however, he shares about his upbringing in the world's most mystical bookstore. He tells the tale of sitting at the feet of Robert Bly in the time just before Iron John would ignite the mythopoetic men's movement. Matthew also speaks of the divine presence in the art of improv comedy and the rules that govern finite and infinite games. And finally, he shares the ancient myth of Phaeton and being undone by his own awakening into fatherhood. Before we begin, I'd like to mention my new offering titled Beyond the Podcast. This is a bi-weekly live series over Zoom that follows each new episode, where I will share further on the themes and ideas we have explored. When possible, I will also invite the guests on the show to answer your questions. Beyond the Podcast is available to podcast Patreon supporters, and all members of the Mythic Masculine Network. Visit themythicmasculine.com to learn more. And now, enjoy my conversation with Matthew Stillman. Welcome, Matthew, to the show. Thanks so much, James. Good to see you. As you might know, I'd love to begin by asking my guests to share a little bit of where they are in this moment, spiritually, emotionally, geographically, and uh, I'd love to offer that to you. Uh, I'm in my basement of my home on 123rd Street in New York City in Harlem. It's a rainy day, and that's where I am here, and it's the first signs of autumn being cold are happening today. So I've noticed that because there still are a few open windows in the house and the heating hasn't turned on yet. So I've just sort of noticed the, the coldness of the place today. 
That's where I am. We're recording this on the final days of October. And I wonder how New York is faring in the pandemic, which in earlier times, earlier this year, it's felt like it would became an epicenter, uh, at least in the US for a time. And I wonder how is it faring now? How has it been for you lately? Uh, well, you know, it's going great. <laughs> I mean, it's not. It's, um, you know, New York City is, you know, I've lived here my entire life. I've lived here for 47 years. And through all the things that have um, happened in this city, uh, nothing has ever really shaken me from ever thinking that I might not be here. Uh, and this has shaken me. But, you know, New York City is 30,000 souls light right now. Um, you know, while we are on the, the back end of of the curve, whatever that means, and New York State is the third best state in terms of how it's doing with COVID infections uh, in the United States at the moment, like our cases are going up too. I mean, not nearly as bad as other places. Um, so there's the reality of all of this is known here. Um, but at the same time, there still are people who are pretending like it's phase nine and want everything to go back to normal, but there's no normal to go back to. I mean, um, all the things you normally would be in New York for theater, no art, no music, no gathering, no international cuisine. No. Um, do you want to keep your local restaurant open and spend twice as much to help them stay open? But there's so much financial instability. I don't know. Do you want to do that? So it's a weird place. Um, right now undone mm. and of course you know the appetite for amnesia is strong so mm. well thanks for the report this interview i'm very excited by one because we've known each other now for a number of years um and largely through our shared time in the orphan wisdom school with stephen jenkinson one of the things i appreciate about our relationship is i feel like i'm constantly finding out new avenues that you've explored you know, with thought, with story, with spirituality, with teachers. And it's like, it's like never ending. Anytime I seem to like bring up a topic, you're like, oh yeah, well, you know, I did this or I studied with them or, you know, I read, the, I researched that story. And so this interview as well feels like we could go in so many places, which, um, you know, we have a few in mind. Um, and how about we start though with a little bit about your upbringing in that I understand you, you grew up in a, in a, maybe it wasn't religious, but it was a very spiritual, or sort of spiritual, it's almost scholarly upbringing, if I recall. And I'd love to just, yeah, start there and hear more about that. Sure. I mean, so there's there's two strands that are there from my upbringing. Um, I'm a, like I said, I'm a born and bred New Yorker. My parents are both born and bred New Yorkers, and they are, uh, and I'm a Jewish New Yorker. And so my parents are Jewish as well. And so there is sort of like a scholarliness that sort of just comes all alone through the, the Jewish line, um, you know, people of the book for sure. Um, and sort of there's a, a generational, you know, study and that's you know, your, your way through the world. So that was in there. My father, when I was young, ran a, he was the manager of the, the world's biggest and probably most important spiritual bookstore called Wiser's. And I was sort of like the mascot of the place for a number of years and literally was raised in the stacks. You know, I would like the, the stacks in the back were a jungle gym for me and I would sit and read books about esoterica myths and, you know, Tibetan book of the dead and, you know, Egyptian book of the dead, like whatever it was. 
Um, you know, I don't particularly remember this, but you know, the Dalai Lama's brother would show up there and give impromptu talks about Tibetan Buddhism. So this was like a real gathering place where you know the counterculture and the mystical, meaning-seeking people were hanging out. And so my dad, you know, really had his finger on the pulse of what was going on there. So those things were sort of my playground, as well as my father had his own library at home, which was something that I was around. And this was what my family was sort of talking about, esoterica, meaning-making, spiritual work, mythology, history, spiritual work, etc. At the same time, uh, while I went to regular school, and, you know, that's its own line of education, I was also raised in a school called the School of Practical Philosophy, which uh, is a, a school of Advaita Vedanta, which is a kin school to the School of Economic Science in London, which has a relationship with a Indian teacher. And so I was from a very young age, I was studying Sanskrit and language and meditation and had a very scholarly approach towards um, spiritual work. Uh, not only scholarly, but also scholarly. So a lot of physical work as well, but for the purpose of spiritual understanding and experience. And how did that affect you then growing up? Maybe, maybe as you got a bit older into adolescence, like what, what was your uh, relationship to to belief or to any specific worldview? Well, you know, you don't have anything to compare it to. So, I mean, I was, you know, I definitely had a sense that the things that I was thinking about and things that I was interested in weren't common among my peers. No one else, except for my peers who were also in philosophy school, knew anything about Sanskrit. Um, were thinking, and this is not from some point of superiority, but I just, there, you know, there were certain kids who also were raised in the same um, milieu who were like, this stuff doesn't interest me, I don't care. And they, you know, they dropped off when they were 10 or 11 or 12 and sort of forced their parents to not make them do it anymore. But it sort of, it really fit on me. There was something in my meaning-seeking soul or astrologically that sort of was like, yeah, these questions are the ones you want to be around. So even at a young age, the stuff that I was interested in talking about was probably not what your average bear wanted to talk about. And so there definitely was a sense of difference, but uh, and maybe at the time there might have been some sense of specialness, but I think that's faded because um, I think you need all different voices in the choir, as it were. I understand you also had a run-in with Robert Bly. And I can't remember what age, though. I think it was around teen. And I'd love for you to share. Yeah, I'd love for you to share that story. Yeah. So when I was when I was 13, my parents sent me away to summer camp for the first time, which was a sleepaway camp. And I thought I, I was so sad that my parents were sending me away for all the reasons it didn't make sense. I didn't get it. And within two days, it was like an absolutely transformative experience. And it's worth just saying this for a second. Roe is a very unique place in my own history, but uh, it was a place, uh, a row camp and conference center, uh, this Unitarian gathering place that had, was really interested in peer leadership uh, and spiritual work for, for kids for, I guess now, a hundred some odd years. And I had all the things that you might hate about school, about you know, being popular or being judged or not, if you are cool or not, any of those things were just not part, you know, of what was happening at Roe. There just was this incredible acceptance, uh, and there's a lot to say about Roe. So that was, so when I was 14, the year after, I was so excited to go back 
and I didn't know what was going to happen because that was my second year. And Roe just had had a finger on some like under belly stuff that was going on. And Robert Bly, who I found this out years later, was sort of like acquaintances with the guy who ran the camp and was just sort of like carting through. And there was just this announcement made one day saying, hey, you know, there's this uh, man here named Robert Bly and uh, he's uh, a poet and a storyteller and he's going to be here for a week. So if any uh, of, of the of the boys in particular want to hang out with him in the afternoons for a week, you know, that would be your, your sort of afternoon activity, like if you want to do it. And I was like, yeah, sounds cool. Who's Robert Bly? <laughs> and so... During that week, he, you know, I think there was maybe like seven or eight other kids who signed up and two of the or three of the staff members and just hung out for Robert Bly. And he told us the story of Iron John in person and we talked about it. And, you know, the next year, Iron John came out in the world. Like, and, you know, I think maybe that maybe it was two years later that he was on PBS. I was like, oh, my God, I've seen (laughs) I met him. I just, you know, and then I read the book again and. Uh, so I just was very lucky. Like I just sort of literally stumbled into never knowing him and having had a week of him telling stories and asking, you know, uh, asking us questions and us answering his questions and just being around him. Looking back now, what were your impressions of him then, especially knowing that this was really the, the cusp of this, this mythopoetic wave that was really about to flourish? I mean, of course I was 14. I had no idea that a mythopoetic thing was anything and was about to flourish or anything. I just was, you know, a young spiritually minded kid who uh, was interested in mythology and interested in sort of the, the discipline of spiritual work and knowing yourself and being in relationship to the world somehow. So I found him very striking. I found him really, you know, mysterious, but, you know, brusque, but, but sort of like in a, in a cool way. Um, I sort of like remember like some of the things he said were really funny, but some of the things he said weren't that were supposed to be funny. Like, I don't know, like he just was like a really interesting guy, like a very striking figure. You know, he was dressed well, but casually, you know, he sounded sort of cranky all the time. But again, like the stories were really the thing that was so interesting. He really could have this sort of, in a good way, mesmeric quality. Like once he started telling you the story, you're like, you leaned in and you're like, I have never heard anything. I've never heard this story before. You know, as someone who you know, read a lot of Indian myths and a lot of Greek myths and other types, I was like, I just didn't know these stories or that, that particular story. How did you continue then in this, you know, broadly understood to be men's work? Like, I understand you you sort of then started finding other teachers. Maybe this is a few years later, you know, as you got older. And in some ways, you did encounter your understanding of this men's work movement. And I'm curious, yeah, your take on... You know, what was, what was the, the whole kind of ecosystem that was happening around that time? Yeah, I was a teenager, so I, I didn't have a lot of autonomy to sort of start to join men's groups or anything like that till I was in my 20s. But I started, you know, when Iron John came out, I probably read it in 80, you know, 89, something like that. And I just thought, oh, wow, this is really great. And then I started reading other books that were sort of popping up for that. So in high school, while my dad didn't work at Weiser's anymore, I still knew the guys who worked at Weiser's. I mean, I would, had spent my youth with them. So I would just go back into Weiser's and say like, hey, Chip, hey, Don, you know, whoever. Um, 
and they'd say like, "Oh, good to see you." And I just would sit in in Weiser's, you know, after school, plenty of times, just read books. And so it was there that I I forget the year, but I first read, you know, King Warrior, Magician Lover. I just read other things that were sort of in the. I sort of had a nose for finding these things and. Uh, Chip and Dom, just among other people who worked at, at Wiser's, were like, oh yeah, take a look at that one, or don't, or, you know, whatever. So I sort of did my own divination and reading just by myself after school. And, and then in my twenties, I started to, and then also I was still in the school of practical philosophy, which, uh, I was in a, a men's group there. Um, so that was doing spiritual work and reflection with men. So that's something. And then, in my 20s, I started to try to be in other men's groups and just sort of see what was going on. Um, did Mankind at one point, you know, did work with David Data for some time um, and got some things out of it. Some things were terrible. and But I sort of did my time and did my reading and uh, some groups I was in for a month and some I was in for longer. And, and that was that. But a lot of them I found, I found lacking. Yeah, what was that lacking then that you found? Because I also want to name how, you know, in my own tracking of this, I, I call it the first mythopoetic wave, um, that in some ways it went underground, I feel, you know, particularly around maybe mid to later 90s um, into the 2000s, where, you know, I didn't discover any of it until I was 35, which was, you know, not that long ago. Um, and talking to other men who around that time, yeah, Martin Shaw, you know, Michael Mead and others, there is this sense that, yeah, you know what, they ha- they had to kind of uh, do a lot of reflection upon maybe some of the the foundations that weren't as sound or, or needed to be really deepened in a meaningful way. And so I'm curious to hear just your your own tracking of, you know, like what was the what was the unfolding that you recognized that that, that maybe found that limitations that needed to actually be sort of reflected upon before before continuing in any meaningful way. I found a lot of it like trying to be intense, like it was trying to blow your head off. There also was like a, a weird, aggressive sexuality. There was like a huge focus on like, you know, like talking from your dick and like, you know, like, can you like, you know, embody your, you know, like your spiritual cock? I was like, what are you talking about? Like, like I'm all about, you know, embodying, you know, your, your, your sense of sexuality. But like, there was this, like this weird intensity that I was finding in lots of different groups. And I think that some of that was a push away from like the, um, the weaker, sensitive, emotional man that sort of what I have sort of jokingly called emotional ponytail man that sort of emerged in, you know, the late seventies and early eighties. Um, that was sort of like a super peacenik and sort of like felt a bit too hippie. And so like there was this counter movement, but it was so uns, I mean, I wouldn't have used the word then, but I would say it now it was a very unskilled and really unachieved. Like maybe there's something in the idea of it. But it felt like a big turnoff to me. And then also because they were trying so hard to sort of spur men- membership, you sort of had groups that were too big with people who were too diverse in experience. And so you sort of had people sort of clawing to have any sort of time in. So like there was this weird sort of gr- everyone's trying to grab the mic. And so there was this like Im- immediacy about it that didn't feel patient. It didn't feel wise. And it also felt, in all the ones that I was in, even if there was someone who was leading it, people were mostly peer groups. You know, someone was, you know, six years older than you was running the thing. 
I'd leave that aside. David Data was probably the most interesting of the people who I spent time with. But it, even there, I found some limitations, but I still learned a lot from David Data. What do you feel are one of the challenges then even now today as like I've, I've also feel like I've recognized this second wave of this mythopoetic movement and men's work in general it seems to be getting more um, recognition. I think largely too on this kind of a throwdown after the Me Too movement as well of like, hey man, you know, like what are you going to do about it? And so there is this surge, I feel. And also I'm curious to know, you know, again, in the in the hype or in the inspiration, what are some of the the challenges that you still see that kind of dog this attempt to kind of like recraft a, a masculine culture? That's a good question. I'd say that we're still very much people of the head. And so there's a huge amount of basically turning talk therapy into groups and sort of, if you can be in touch with your feelings, ergo, you are de facto a better man. And I don't think that's wrong. But I just think there's more. I think this, this, and you and I, of course, have explored this a lot, uh, as scholars in the Orphan Wisdom School, but there, the complete absence of culture or history, um, or the quality of language, in my experience, lend so much to your capacity to inhabit your, your feelings, inhabit your body, and to see the consequences of all these things. But I recognize that I come from a place that I've done a lot of work on that. And so that's not me sort of like making a macro judgment to say, ah, oh, men's work writ large, get your act together so you can, you know, please, you know, the, the wrathful Stillman God over here in New York. But, you know, it's, you need different points of entry for different people. But my own wish is that in the groups that I'm, have seen emerge in the last couple of years, which I'm glad that they do, that they'd speak about these things. And I think those things are important. And when they are ignored, and, and there have been times where I've spoken to those groups saying, really, like, this, this thing just happened. So I went on a, a dear friend of mine um, started a, a, a large and I'd say well-known men's group. And he, and I love this guy. And I mean, a real dear friend. And he, with some other guys, started this this uh, this this group. And I went on one of his weekends. My father went on one of those weekends uh, with my brother. My father was like, "You got to come. I've never done anything like this." My, my father, of course, you know, is my father who I hold in high esteem. But I sort of wanted this to be his own experience, and I had my own history with the, the guy who founded it. My father said, I've just, in all the things I've done, I hadn't done anything like this. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go. And so I was glad to be with my father, and that was its own thing. But there was this one moment, one, one experience where we were said, you know, tomorrow morning, super early, we're going to be meeting by the barn and then going up into the woods for like something like you, nothing's mandatory, but don't miss this. This is the most important thing we're doing. And so, you know, everyone woke up at, you know, whatever the, the cold hour was and we all, you know, tromped out silently into the woods because silence was really important. And we were told, look, all of you have a huge anger problem. Men don't know how to deal with anger. And so today, now, you're going to transform all your anger. Finally, this is it. 
And so what's going to happen is, you know, you with your partner and you've all been paired off, you're going to pick up a stick. You're going to beat the trees with these sticks. You're going to scream at the top of your lungs. You're going to dig holes in the snow and scream into them. And you're going to have 10 minutes to release every piece of anger and all say all the things you've wanted to say and just, you know, let it rip, howl. This is like, be your, be your feral, untamed man. And you had a bunch of guys who were like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And then on the count of three, all, all these men, you know, 85 men, whatever it was, picked up sticks and started beating on trees and screaming. And it was madness. It was absolutely insane. I was with this older man who just was screaming about his son. But as he was screaming, I just said, what's your son's name? How is hitting this, how is hitting this tree helping you? He was like, I'm just so angry. I'm just so sad. And like, tell, and I was with him and this guy like ended up weeping in my arms, but everyone else is literally recapitulating all the consequence of their anger on nature. Like who didn't ask for 85 dudes to tromp in it? And I'll, I'll never forget this. And the very first minute when someone howled and all these men started screaming, a flock of birds were, which were sitting just took off. That morning happened to be quite cold. And I was like, that took a lot of energy for those birds to take off from where they decided to rest and eat. And, you know, there were, this was winter and there were like little berries in the, and I was like, we actually like are starving these birds. We're making them expend energy. And so, so that these dudes can beat up a tree because of their unvanquished anger. And does that actually like, was today the day? And I was really sad. I was really heartbroken to see that. I mean, like really, it undid me to see something that was so unachieved and so like, and then I, I asked him about it. I said, you know, why didn't you ask for, uh, for permission from the place? Or why didn't you make any offering and say, try to fill the gap? And the, the guy who I asked this question to, who said this in front of everyone, who was not my friend, said, oh, nature can take it. She can take out whatever we can deal her. And I was like, oh, God, that is, you know, if that's not capitalism, if that's not modern masculinity, I mean, I don't know what is. And so I was like, and so I spoke to my friend and he was like, man, but how would you have done that? And I sort of said, like, you can say all these things, you can do all these things. And it doesn't make it better. It doesn't fix it, but at least it creates some, like, slowness. And he was like, I don't know, maybe it's a, it's a little weird. I'm like, you're having people howl and beat trees with sticks. It's not that weird they're here they're, they'll do whatever you, you ask them and so that's just one example but um there are others where it's like there's this this like hungriness to like fix it as opposed to court it mm. it's powerful you know what comes to me is something that uh, our, our teacher Stephen jenkinson has said but um that to be awake is to be undone by the consequences of which you don't intend. And that I hear in this story, again, the sense of, well, where nature can take it, which is a, a sort of yeah, very lack of relationship to, and, and a lack of understanding of consequence. In this case, you know, you naming the birds that suddenly were probably 
totally scared and took off and, and, you know, scared away from the food and all the other ways in which the, the, the wake of that kind of thing, which may seem like a good idea from the inside, you know, men getting in touch with their anger, building relationship, because otherwise, you know, it can be expressed in other ways, violence against, you know, each other, violence against women and children. So, you know, I, I guess I see it from that side too. And yet, you're right, there's this other deeply missing piece that I feel um, is largely, I think, in some ways what felt spiraled the the first wave where there wasn't a, a deep mm, relational connection to place, I felt. Like that, I think, was one of the things that I've been tracking that I think had had to be learned versus, you know, having nature like as a backdrop to, you know, men's work which is what it it was and, and the danger of it continuing to be that versus actually rebuilding true relationship to place, um, which again is a very different, I don't know, orbit, let's say around masculinity. Yeah. I'd just say, yes, the, the because the, the first wave of, of the men's movement was so intellectual and coming from such a yawning gap of a place, they went to the, the place that they knew best, which was their heads. You know, let's open a book, let's talk it out. And didn't know anything about place really at all. There sort of was a, a deferral like, well, indigenous people probably know something, but we're not indigenous. So ta-da. You know, it does make me think too that, um, I had another guest on, um, Michael Gay, who, who does work with Sacred Sons, but he, he, he's also a practicing therapist in Boulder and he's done a lot of sort of bioenergetics and, and wilderness therapy. So I would say, yeah, he definitely has made that connection. Uh, and he did say something about catharsis, which I thought was, was, interesting and, and somewhat mirrored in Robert Bly's take, uh, which I saw recently on the documentary about his life, but he just named that there was a real need for, for, uh, sort of like the reawakening of, of sensitivity and, and to expression, right? So, cause a lot of men will have a, you know, there's just sort of two, two settings, like fine and white hot rage. And so that there's a certain need to develop that subtlety, that nuance, and to be able to express. But then catharsis alone is is not that helpful um, without understanding and then like integrating and and like you said, you know, kind of bringing it back into the relationship again. So anyway, I hear that as well uh, as a danger to the current um, men's movement as well. That that sort of catharsis expression alone is sort of there. You go and pat yourself on the back and you know head back to your life. Yeah. I want to shift gears too to understand uh, what were the, some of the other paths of inquiry that you were significant to you, um, you know, over the last, I mean, decade or so. I mean, I know you wrote a book uh, called Genesis Deflowered, and you wrote another book too. So <laughs> I'd love to hear a little bit about that journey for you as well. What drew you to that subject matter, um, and and to summarize them in, in a fashion? Sure. Well, I'll do the the shorter book first because it's shorter, but it's called um, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments as a Guide to Long-Form Improvisational Comedy. It was a huge seller. I mean, huge. <laughs> um, I've been studying long-form improvisational comedy. Uh, I started set, um, in 1996. Uh, Amy Poehler was my first improv teacher. And so I studied with the Upright Citizens Brigade from 1996. I mean, in, until, you know, I, I was playing on their stage and studying until last year when, you know, the theaters have shut down, et cetera. So improv has been a huge part of my spiritual inquiry. And the reason why I wrote that book is that in one particular session, uh, Amy said, improv has been my religion. 
The stage has been my church and I've learned more about being a good person and the person I want to be and need to be on stage than I have in any of my churches you know, back in Boston where I grew up. And Amy you know, was only two years older than I was and am, but she was so amazing to learn from. And hearing this at, you know, age 23 or four, I mean, yeah, 23 was just like, wow, this is a big thought. And so I thought, like, if if that relationship is one way, it must be reciprocal. And so I, I wrote this book, like, okay, the, what, is the, what do the Ten Commandments have to say about improv? And so I wrote that book. And like I said, huge seller. That's how I bought this house. <laughs> uh, so that's one book. So but I've, I've thought a lot about, you know, I don't know if this is actually true, but but I think that the West is is bereft of all sorts of things. But the closest thing that the West might have to something in a fractured way, like a shamanic magical experiences, improvisational comedy that's actually native to here. So I've, that's always felt like a really powerful, important part of my, uh, meaning making and, uh, searching and capacity to be with people. Could you just summarize a bit too? What is improv? I, I know a little bit about improvisational comedy, but I'd love for you just to share from your perspective. What is it? Cause you just named it as this, you know, shamanic practice. And I'd love for you to, Eliminate that. I put shamanic in quotes in the sense that it's more of a function than the actual term shaman, which of course comes from a particular part of the world. Um, so I want to make that distinction. So there's nothing about, you know, being from the, the, the steppes of Asia or the Yakut culture or anything like that. But it, it's a, it's a magical, uh, sort of a thing of summoning through speaking. But improv comedy, there's two main branches, long form and short form. The idea with both of them is that you don't know what you're going to do until you get on stage. Short form is geared towards, and this is in no way insulting it, but it's geared towards jokes. Like, can we get to the punchline? And then it's over. And if it's funny, great. And if it's not funny, great. But it's over. And so in the, the span of a half an hour, there may be 10, 15, 20 little bits in it. And a show like Whose Line Is It Anyway captures the spirit of short form well. Long form, I would consider to be much more challenging to do as a performer but asks more of the viewer but much more satisfying it's more like weaving if their things are funny that's great you can't rest on them and if the things aren't funny you have to find a way to weave them in because you only get one suggestion and it lasts for 30 minutes so you need to find ways of creating relational qualities to the space to each other to create something that that lasts that isn't story driven but is relationship driven for the whole time and it's an art and it's hard and it's beautiful and it's magic. Beautiful. I'm reminded of my own inquiry over the last decade or so, which has been initially sparked through my time uh, working on a film called Occupied Love. And we, in that film, the director and I, we explored this phenomenon of emergence, um, in particularly around social movements. And since then, you know, I've also kind of taken it upon myself as an individual inquiry into tracking like this phenomenon whether it's yeah flocking birds or schools of fish um, but also in things like you know contact improv dance and i see in what you've named with improv comedy as well that there is this quality of what i would maybe call emergence um and i'm curious for you that there's how do you conceive of you know again if there's no script and it's not necessarily people are just inventing things in their head per se. Like I, I suspect that's not the case. Yeah. Like what do you understand is what's happening there? Um, 
when, when, you know, I might even say like, how does the divine get in the room? This is, you know, a huge place of inquiry. And I think there are certain improvisers who've thought about this a lot. Del Close, who's sort of the, the godfather of long form improvisational comedy was very interested in theater as a, a type of summoning. Uh, he was really, he was pursuing this as, I mean, obviously to be, to be funny as well, but not only to be funny. It was a meaning making thing for him. And so you could read lots of things by Del Close and see how um, he was chasing this down. But the, I, if you had to summarize it, it's a notion of how do you create group mind? And you create group mind where the group knows more than any individual does by having ritual openings, um, which if you didn't know the the fact that everyone was wearing, you know, sort of cargo pants and, you know, flannel shirts or t-shirts can look pretty weird and could look like, wow, well, it looks a lot like, you know, weirdo dance and play and discovery and not to enthrone. It's not skilled in the same way or culturally understood the same way that some sort of indigenous dance might be. But there's a lot of, you know, dancey elements. There's a lot of getting into your body elements. There's a lot of uh, noticing what tiny little finger movements and tiny little eye movements and a slight turn away from someone, what that evokes in you, what that feels in you. And then how do you speak that so you actually can start a scene? Because you don't need to think of something because someone's turning 10 degrees away from you in the middle when you walk out. says, oh, they're ignoring me. Oh, well, how do I... And then there's the beginning of your scene. Another book that I reference fairly often in the podcast is finite and infinite games uh, of which I understand that you one studied with was friends with the author for a number of years and that um, you found the book to be integral as well to your own uh, thought and your own path. And I'll just make the link um, that for me, I see also an improv, a, a an infinite game or like a, a, an expression of an infinite game, and I wonder if first you could, uh, again, delineate your understanding of the book. I mean, I know it's quite deep and at the same time for the listener, if you could sketch out. So what is the book, Finite Infinite Games, and what, how do they differentiate? How does the author differentiate between them? Well, before I say that, I'd say this. I first came across the book in 1996. Um, a guy named Al, Al Blaylock gave it to my brother and I, and I read and he was a member of the School of Practical Philosophy. And I read, my brother and I read that book, and I was like, this book is unbelievable. I cannot believe this book is so good. My brother and I like read that book out loud to each other five or six times, like, like in a row. We're like, this is having so much. And I just, I started buying the book for people. I like, was reading it just thinking, it wasn't the only book I was reading. I mean, you know me, I'm a very bookish person, but I, was really, this book was really capturing something. I was thinking about it. I was trying to talk to people about it. I'd, I would start book clubs with people about it. Just like, can we talk about this? The things that are in here, like the consequences of this book. And I didn't know who James Cars was. And then in 2002, in the winter of 2002, there was a, a mailing that came from Roe Camp and Conference Center. 
where I met Robert Bly and went to camp all those years ago and was a staff member and all those things, that said, Finite Infinite Games. James Karst will be doing a session on Finite Infinite Games. And I was like, what? Holy smokes. I can't believe it. Wow. Well, I signed up. I went with the woman who I was married with at the time and another friend who I'd been reading the book with and went up and, you know, had this three or four day session with him and, you know, 10 other weirdos to talk about Finite Infinite Games. And it was great. I mean, all the things you could say about it were great. But during that time, I said, no, I've read this book. I'm a big fan and, you know, fanboyed about it. And James Carse uh, lived in New York and he was a professor of comparative religion and literature at NYU. And so I sort of felt we had like a New York connection. And I said, it's so funny. Like, why are you at Roe? And he said, oh, I live down the road. I've, uh, I've lived here for years. Like, oh yeah, I know Doug and Doug is the guy who started the camp and yeah. And I've, I didn't even realize it until that conversation that I'd sat on James Carse's steps for years on evening activities on our way to do a chapel. I mean, it was, I mean, I literally had sat at the foot of his driveway for 10 years. And so I was like, I mean, I shook. I mean, I would say I have chills saying it now because I just felt so lucky. And, and we just sort of hit it off. And he said, you've really thought about this book and thank you for thinking about it. And you've really wrestled with it. And because he lived in New York and lived in Roe, I just felt like the luckiest guy. And so we just started to hang out and um, talk and talk on the phone. And he just sort of welcomed my intrusion <laughs> into his life. And I didn't take over. I wouldn't say that I was like, you know, his best bro or, you know, his uh, amanuensis or tried to do things for him. or But like we saw each other, we talked. And at some point when I would just sort of ask him about stuff or share things, at one point he said, and you and I had, I had this big idea about the book. I was like, oh man, you need to really expand this book into this other place. And it's like, you've got to do that. You have my permission. You should write the sequel. That's a great title. Do it. And so I've completely failed this, this good mentor, <laughs> um, this elder of mine. Um, I mean, I have been working on it really slowly, but he wrote this book, Finite Infinite Games. It's just like a giant of a book. And uh, I mean, I can just, I mean, I, I literally have it right here. I mean, I mean, I'm currently in three book clubs reading Finite and Infinite Games. But it starts off saying this. There are at least two kinds of games. One could be called finite, the other infinite. A finite game is played for the purpose of winning, and an infinite game for the purpose of continuing the play. If a finite game is to be won by someone, it must come to a definitive end, it will come to an end when someone has won. And it goes on. But So he explores this notion of what a finite game is and what its consequences are, what an infinite game is and might be and what its consequences are and its, um, its modes of play and what it requires of people to engage with them. And doesn't say that they're the only things, but there are two important ones that are playing out. 
And for the listener too, I, I want to also make the link that, you know, when he says game as well, some people might think like, oh, you mean, you know, like soccer or cards or something. But the way I also interpret the book is, you know, he could apply that to culture or religion or, yeah, like other spheres where from this lens, uh, one can recognize that, that there is these kind of like maybe unsaid rules governing the, the game, governing play. I mean, society, right, as well. It has certain rules, some spoken, some not that um, people are conditioned into participating in. And so, yeah, for me, I also found it quite powerful to be able to to almost yet yeah, step back enough to see this lens. Um, and what I'd love to make here in this conversation, you know, I have a curiosity around uh, how does one apply that lens to the current conversation of masculinity? Because for me, you know, I'll just say that, you know, if I, for example, look at, uh, I don't know, toxic masculinity, you know, say as a frame, um, this idea of, uh, emphasis on winning, you know, emphasis on power over emphasis on, I don't know, hierarchy or all these ways that it seems that there's a sort of finite game being played, you know, to the consequence of, of many, many others. Um, and I'm curious for you to, to explore that or have you explored that? Um, and I'd love to hear more about that. The word power in particular is, a, I think a unique one, you know, power, power is power over. Power is trying to end the game to say, here's someone who's definitively won. It's contradictory because it basically means that we're trying to make that the past never existed and that the future never exists either. So there's this weird uh, rupturing of one where you're trying to exercise power. You're trying to destroy the capacity to have a relationship in either direction on the timeline, assuming time is linear, which we'll just do for a second. And only a few people can have power. Not everyone can. Whereas anyone can be strong. And to play with strength invites a tremendous amount of flexibility and capacity. And it, it invites more people to be involved in the game. So in terms of toxic masculinity, I mean, of course, the game is very much power because it's about trying to eliminate people from the game. You know, whether it's, you know, that horrible wife, whether it's the, you know, my horrible boss, whether it's the president, whether it's, you know, what, whoever it is that the, the toxicity is pointed towards, but it's, it's built structurally oppositionally and it has a field of play, uh, with the winner being the title of a real man, mm. which is its own heartbreak. Whereas strength is, invites people in and doesn't even require men to be the ones to do it, but doesn't exclude them either. It makes me think of one of the other principles, if I can recall it correctly. Uh, but it's something like, you know, a finite player plays to win, whereas an infinite player plays to keep playing. And I'm also, you know, I'm struck by, again, this parallel between what I feel is the the kind of techno-utopic, you know, live forever movement. You know, death is a flaw. Um, this sense that the the game ends for the specific person, let's say, to, you know, when their, when their death ends, and that's why it's seen as a flaw. Whereas I feel like there's a cultural understanding, maybe, a, you know, older cultures or cultures that understand the whole life-death uh, cycle, right, that death feeds life, that there's this recognition like, oh, the game keeps going if I'm willing to play my part, if I'm willing to participate, i.e. if I'm willing to die. The game gets to keep going, right? Which again feels very opposite to again the current modern culture, which is essentially, you know, things are meant to triumph forever. That's exactly it. I mean, the um, infinite players don't play with titles 
for foreverness, they play with their names. So, which are, everyone has a name, not everyone has a title. So this is uh, a tremendous flexibility to, that you can, you can give up your life because the game going on is more important than your particular position in it. Mm. Looking at the current cultural conversation around masculinity, you know, one of the things I, I actually tried to do also with this podcast is offer different ways of understanding the questions or at least maybe asking better questions. And so I, I actually think that the, the term or the label or the frame of toxic masculinity, I mean, is helpful insofar as, yeah, certain behaviors and, and certain systemic oppression and things can, can be named as, as certainly undesirable and not okay. And at the same time, it almost feels like, it feels like cornering the conversation on masculinity into this very narrow kind of like do less harm, um, frame. And I wonder if this, uh, the lens of the infinite game could be applied to this conversation and actually ask and invite different questions and different pathways. Certainly. I mean, there's a, a number of other terms which are useful to maybe braid together. I mean, is it nurturance culture? Sure. Is there, is, is there sacred pleasure activism? Sure. Like there's lots of different features, which, you know, as good of a book as finite and infinite games is, and it's singular in its outlook it's not so small that it can't uh, have kin. Otherwise, it would be a failure of a book in this regard. So I think it, it invites other people into the, the conversation and other uh, modes of thought about these. So I, mean, I do think that someone like Rianne Eisler has added a tremendous amount to use you know, her notion of nurturance culture that she writes about. But other people have written about nurturance culture as well. So I, I'm, I'm into the, the idea that uh, Infinite Games... Or infinite, or infinite game playing, the capacity to play infinitely, has a tremendous amount to offer the conversation that men are trying to have, because men have been caught in the snare culturally, or aculturally, about achievement, and, and how contradictory that is, and it takes them out of their bodies, out of their relationship to place, and out of relationship with their people to, to other people. I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, how does how does this notion of achievement uh, fundamentally pull pull men out of context? If you are competing to be the regional manager, if you are competing to be the best dad, if you're competing to be the raddest dad, uh, sorry, that was a little, a little poke at you. Um, <laughs> If you're, but if you have this, this notion of, of, of competition about some sort of thing you're trying to get that other people can't have, some title, if you're achieving, trying to become Pope, if you're trying to become whatever it is, congressman, that other people can't have, you have to create a whole worldview around that that says, I have one thing and you don't have it. And so when that is supported by the, all the, the mechanisms you're thinking about, the way that you feed yourself, the way that the culture is also endorsing that, that you need to achieve, you need to make a, a name for yourself. All these little cues in the language basically say, don't be in relationship to other people just by the nature of, you know, you, you know, starting a business by yourself or pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. All these things are small cues to a larger, a cultural idea that it's you and not going to be other people. And so that, you know, if you at the same time are not conversant with the place that you're in, 
don't know much about your body, don't talk about your feelings, all these things. This sounds a lot like, you know, how can I do all these things? Yeah, it strikes me as somewhat of a, of a like a hangover of the hero, you know, of the oh, hero narrative. Totally. Yeah, I wouldn't even say it's a hangover. Um, I'd say it's like it's a shambling wreck of it. Um, I mean, hangover makes it feel like it just happened last night, but this is just like a collapsed heap that people are still enthroning. It's mm-hmm. a bit more like I'd, I'd say uh, the the poem Ozymandias, uh, which I don't know if you know, but you know about a traveler in an antique land. There, two vastless trunks, uh, legs of stone near them on the sand. And I forget the middle bit. It's been a long time since I recited that one. But it says at the end, look upon ye mighty and despair. And it's this big broken visage of a old leader with a sign that says, look upon me mighty and despair. But you know, this is, um, obviously he's fallen and his statue has fallen and it's been 3000 years. And so this notion of heroism, I love that poem. It's been a long time since I recited that. I should get that one back in there. It's relevant. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I'd say that this notion is so, it's, it fell apart so long ago, but we still are like, this is the best thing ever. It's the only thing we, we got going on. And it isn't. You also wrote a book called Genesis Deflowered, which, which I know a little bit about, but I'd love for you to share a little bit too about uh, what seems to be a reapproach to this uh, core mythology of the West. Yeah, so I wrote Genesis Deflowered. It's a book of uh, it's the book of Genesis, the King James Bible's version of Genesis, full of these and thous, um, but with text added to turn it into an erotic telling. So, but it's not just you know saying like you know Eve had big tits and Joseph had the biggest dick. Like that would be sort of like, I mean, that book could be written, but I was really the reason why I wrote this book is that a friend of mine asked me to to help them do research on a, on strange erotica. And so I being a good researcher found a bunch of really strange stuff. And there's, you wouldn't be surprised at how weird it is. But in the searching, I found this, uh, the short story that was being sold. That was an erotic retelling of Mary getting pregnant with the spirit, with the Holy spirit. And I mean, I read it and it was terrible. And every every single dimension you could imagine it being terrible from spelling and grammar to just, you know, all of it. But the reviews were amazing. I mean, there was like a hundred reviews and people were like, this turned me on and made me love Jesus more. This made me realize why Mary was so special and had such a special, special or such a special relationship with God. And I was like seeing in these reviews, this is calling out to like a real fracture that's exists in the culture between sex and spirit, which I have known about, had thought about. I have my own path with that, which maybe we can talk about now or some other time. But I thought this, I can do a better job of this. I can absolutely do a better job with this. I know that. And I hate writing with a deep and abiding passion and I have, and I write often. I mean, I really don't like it, but I was like this, I know exactly what I'm doing. But so I started doing scholarship. I started digging deep into Elizabethan and Jacobean poetry, looking at the translations, looking at the way people had understood these verses. And I thought the only way to do this fairly is not to write, you know, Eve had big tits, but is to write in the style of the Elizabethans and the Jacobeans. Because whether or not you are a believer, 
and whether or not you're a scholar of these things, so much of our language is captured in the King James Bible. You could be the most you know rocking atheist who thinks that religion is the stupidest thing, and you are speaking so many words and phrases that are just from that time. And so it was a, a real achievement of of love and scholarship to to write in this way. And I was very touched by many of the responses that I got. But to have you know a, a nun say, I couldn't always tell where your verses ended and the Bible began, or for a, a, a gay but celibate priest say to me, I wish I'd had this book when I was young. It would have made a huge difference in my life. And I felt really, you know, undone by that. And so that book came out. It did pretty well for a book of biblical erotica written in Elizabethan English. Um, and I'm slowly editing uh, Exodus to Flower, and I've been working on Leviticus to Flower. You know, it's not my main thing, but I'm interested in sort of trucking my way through. But most importantly, that there is a fracture between sex and spirit in the culture. And this was one of one way to try to tend to a little part of it. Another thread that you wrote an essay on, which I don't think was ever released, but uh, I believe it was called The Hand That Dare Sees Fire. What the Hand Dare Sees the Fire. And in some ways, I feel it was like a, an attempt to reconstruct a, a almost like a first cause in some ways about the the, the current moment. Um, and I would love for you to, to speak to that for the listener. Yeah, that was a... Um... A, a really amazing research piece, uh, which is like a 70 page PDF, which is like too short to be a book. And so I was tr- finding ways to expand it. So, uh, what the hand there sees the fire is about the domestication of fire and how domesticating fire made us human, made humans human in the sense that it allowed us to eat things that quote unquote weren't food and turn them into food. It allowed more nutrients to be released in meat and other things, which allowed us to get bigger brains, which allowed us to have a throwing shoulder, which allowed us to understand the world in a very different way. There's a whole cascade of things, but when you start to make a a shift from being able to have light beyond daylight and nighttime, this starts to do things to our bodies and our ways of perceiving the world and understanding what, what darkness means. I mean, Animals aren't scared of night, but humans are scared of darkness. There's some of these consequences. But when you go from a campfire to a stove to an oven to a chamber to a bomb, those are just some of the ones. Wherever you make the container for fire harder and smaller, what I've found a connection to is that you find very quickly that they, in concert with that technological change, a loss of the of the rights of women and feminine values in the culture. And then I'd say there's a, a divine feminine kickback that happens a few generations afterwards because the, as I now know her to be fire does not like to be contained in that way and not remembered. And I make a lot of correlations, not necessarily causations. It's a cultural understanding and not to say, you know, there's some wrathful, um, Lady Jesus, who's like, I don't like this. But you know, there's some interesting things that, uh, when you put them together, like, huh, that's a really interesting set of relationships that have emerged. So I, I look at fire, you know, agriculture, big thing to wonder about and the consequences of that. Alphabetic literacy, huge things to wonder 
and that is still playing out tremendously. But the domestication of fire, I would say, is the was a slow on ramp to both making us human and making us forget that we're human. It's interesting, you know, when you say that as well, the domestication of fire, uh, particularly in a time now where, you know, so much of the West Coast here is ravaged by wildfires, you know, now yearly, um, as well as, of course, the horrific wildfires in Australia um, almost a year ago. And so in some sense, you're right. It's like, it's almost like a pseudo ability of, quote, domestication, while at the same time, the the kind of the spillover, the consequence, uh, the shifting climate sort of unleashes the wake of that domestication in a way that's actually uh, wild by its nature. Yeah. The, I mean, I, I think for me as a, as a man, I found myself really surprised by how feminine fire is uh, and how physiologically, how deeply women were changed by, by fire I mean, how their hips had to change, how their under, how women were the first people to understand rhythms and times because they felt it in their bodies in a way that men just didn't or couldn't. You know, much has been said of, and more, I'm sure, could be said about like the the relevance of menstruation. But you know, women have this iron rich menstruation, which other animals, the few animals that men, that menstruate, has almost no minerals in it at all. Why would women be giving up such a valuable resource? And so, like, there's this deep rhythm between femininity and fire and the nature of the world and men trying to control it, all these things. Um, but this, this notion of the domestication of fire that, you know, it is not universal, but it is very, very broad that fire was stolen. You know, in, in the West, we sort of know the story of Prometheus. Fire was, you know, taken from the gods and he was punished. But you find that all over, you know, rabbits stole it from fox. You know, this person stole it from a tree. You know, birds stole it from, you know, whatever. Um, I had to cut my grandmother's hand off because she made fire and I had to do it in the night. You know, murder. And there's this notion ancestrally, mythologically, that humans were never supposed to have fire and that we have it but there's like a consequence to it. Like there was all this mayhem that went along with it. And I think that there's this ancestral remembering like, man, we're lucky to have this. And, and there's always a consequence when you get it when you're not supposed to. And I think that, you know, I chasing that down and how that shows up again, etymologically, biologically, etc., was a thrilling thing to me, but also a very humbling one for me as well. And that, and that, you know, shows up, you know, in what's called the Anthropocene, which I think actually is a problematic term, but um, but it also shows up in all these fires that you're talking about. It's all a consequence of controlling fire into smaller and harder spaces. And there's like this huge kickback in the world. We spoke earlier about a, a particular myth that felt appropriate to share, the myth of Phaeton. And perhaps as we round out the nearing the end of the conversation, I'd love to to open that up. Sure. Well, before I, I say that, tell you the myth of Phaeton and why I, th I think it's relevant to, to, to this conversation is first to, to mention about the explosion, uh, the called the Tunguska explosion that happened in 1908 uh, in Russia. I don't know if you know about it. Mm -mm. Well, it happened. It was amazing. So there was a, a meteor that landed in, um, 
Well, actually, it didn't land. It exploded over central Russia, 1908, I forget the year. And there were people thrown from their houses. People, you know, there was a thousand miles of flattened forests and croplands. It, the sky exploded. It was, you know, there, even though it didn't actually land itself, the explosion of it made a huge crater. I mean, a huge, huge crater. And from, of course, all the scientists that did the measurements, and this was, of course, before World War II, and when the, the bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki were dropped. But it was, I think, don't quote me on this, but I think 20 times larger in terms of concussive force. Just an absolutely massive thing. But you had these uh, reports from people in, uh, in near Tunguska saying, I didn't know, I thought the world was ending. I couldn't. Everything was insane. And it was insane for a long time. The sky was black, all those things. So, Phaeton. Uh, we'll just leave that aside for a second. When you think of Greek myths, you think, oh, they're ancient. They're so old. They're the oldest myths in the world. Like, you know, and if you had to guess, you'd think, they're 2,000, they're 3,000. Well, you know, some of the oldest Greek myths are 4,000-ish years old. But they're also younger Greek myths. And the myth of Phaeton is one we actually know how old it is. How do you know? How do you date a myth? I mean, there's lots of ways to do such things. But fate, the story of Phaeton, which we'll get to, I promise, um, is a is what's called a geomyth. And it's a myth that's based on an experience that happened in the world at a geological scale. And of course, you know, stories of floods are examples of this, but there are others as well. And so you can date these if you can sort of correlate it to what thing was happening. But even just a myth about like that mountain is a geomyth as well, because it's based on something that's in the world. So we have the story of Phaeton from Ovid, who wrote the, his book Metamorphoses in the first century AD. And according to him, he said, you know, he worked, looked through the deepest most ancient texts he could possibly find of ancient Greece to find these stories. Great. We know from uh, from dating that that this myth of Phaeton is a geomyth and that there was a huge explosion that was like the one that happened in Tunguska, but much, much bigger, that flew over Greece, landed in southern Bavaria, uh, that happened, if I recall, in 700 BC. And so in between... Oh, no, 500 BC. And so between when this happened and when the, the myth that Ovid you know, did his research for 500 years, which is a long time and not a long time. So we know that this myth emerged. It couldn't have emerged you know, on the day of the story, on the day of the explosion. And we'll get to the explosion in the story. It had to take some time to get to it. If for... Ovid, he looked into the deep, the deepest mysteries. Maybe that's 200 years. So maybe it took the Greeks 300 years to come up with the story. Maybe. So once upon a time, the Helios, the sun, comes over with his flaming chariot of beautiful horses, sets in the west, and there he sees this incredibly beautiful woman. And he's, you know, sweating of his hard day of work and sees this lady and says, I don't know if you just saw my awesome horses. But I am the sun, and you are super hot. You want to do it? And she's like, yeah. And they totally do it. And she totally gets pregnant. And 
he sort of visits her and for, you know, nine months later she gives birth and she's like, your son's amazing. He's so beautiful. I'm going to call him Phaeton, just like you, a, a beam of beauty. He's like, yeah, totally get it. But I'm the son. I gotta go. Bye. And he basically is a, an absent dad. And Phaeton is beautiful. He's, I mean, a beautiful, beautiful man, young man. And he's, his parentage has not been kept from him. And so he's told, because of his un, unusual beauty, he's like, my dad's Helios, the son. And people are like, you are a liar, A. And B, you're covering for your mother, who's a total whore. And he's like, shut up. Not true. I'll show all you jerks. And so, you know, is he 13? Is he 16? He's a young boy. And so he decides to leave home and go to the end of the earth and meet his dad. And just as the amazing flaming steeds are pulling into the end of the earth in the west, he stands there and Helios wipes his brow and he says, Phaeton. Oh my. I can't believe it. I could, it could only be you. I haven't seen you since you were a child and I love you. I love you so much. I can't believe you did this impossible thing by going to the end of the earth where no human can ever go to see me. You're the best. You're the best too, dad. And he says, son, I want to grant you a boon. Anything at all, just for you doing this incredible thing so we could be together. I swear on the river Styx that I will grant you your wish, your boon. And he says, Dad, I've been bullied so much at school. I want to drive the uh, the chariot of the sun tomorrow. Tomorrow. And Helios is super unstoked because he knows that no person can do that. And But he's sworn on the river Styx and he's like, please, I'm begging you. Anything else anything else you will you cannot do it it's not possible and he says am i not your son am i you know i'm called phaeton i am of you i am as beautiful and all capable like i can do this how dare you and you swore and i love you and you must and so helios is like i swore and mournfully all night gives him a crash course tutorial. You know, they get, you know, driving the sun for dummies. Um, they read that book cover to cover. They do all the flashcards. They do like a, like a simulator, like a flight simulator. <laughs> Their interconnection super strong. That all works really well, but you know, and right before, you know, sunrise, he's standing there. He's like, you got this. And he knows in his head, he's like, you do not got this. You know, just, you got to hold on to the reins real strong first because these horses are divine horses. And it's like, I got this, Dad. And boom. And the moment they come out, the horses feel that there is not a strong hand or not strong enough hand behind them. And it goes terrible immediately. And the way the myth goes is that the sun starts to careen towards the earth and scorches the earth and turns parts of the of the world into desert and burns crops and then it veers into the sky and the the, the world goes dark and 
gets cold and just starts doing this like zigzagging insanity. And Zeus sees this is not, this is going to destroy the world. And so he takes out huge lightning bolts um, and his biggest you know, booms of thunder and destroys it, destroys the sun, kills the horses, kills Phaeton. And then it, it says in the myth, crashes in, uh, God, I can't think of the name of the, of the place, but it's a place. And that place is uh, near the, the Dnieper River, which is in Bavaria. And then it says in the myth that his sisters, all of Phaeton's sisters who are not of the sun, um, go to the to this big place where he crashed, where all these noxious fumes are coming out of this giant lake that he's made, um, and all their tears made made a lake, and they turned into trees, which had like these sap, which always runs from them in the form of amber, and and of course Helios the next day has to get a whole bunch of you know janky horses and like, get his his act back to, together, and the world goes on. So this is the geomyth. There was this this giant uh, meteor that flew directly over Greece, landed in Bavaria. We know when it happened. We know from the size of, of its impact and its directionality that there would have been toxic fumes in the lake, all those things. But this would have been 275 times bigger than the one that happened at Tunguska. Even bigger than that. I mean, absolutely world-shakingly crazy. I mean, if the one at Tunguska flattened a thousand square miles of croplands and forest, we don't, it's hard to conceive how absolutely, this is the sort of thing that not only would you have told your children about or your grandchildren about, but they would have like, do you remember the time where the darkness wouldn't stop, where like nothing would grow, like this was a world shaking event. And so the Greeks were a mythically literate people and you who are mythically literate people took, this is an estimate, of course, 300 years to make mythic sense of that as a people. And that, you know, trailed into the Roman understanding to say, like, this story means something. Now, you can make a lot of things of what that myth means. It's hubris, it's um, the relationship of sons and fathers, relationship to place. All There's lots of things you could say about it. But you can also say that it the Greek people who, again, were good at this, it took them a long time to say, this is the way that we're going to say what this means to us, which is still a mystery. And I think for a time like this, when you're talking about masculinity or you're talking about COVID or you're talking about anything to say, like, I know what this means and it's, and it's settled and it's solved. When, and we're mythically illiterate. Not to say that myth is the only thing that's required, but I do think that it's important. And we're so poetically untrained and so not skilled in the tongue to speak about these things. But there's so much sense of like, it's, you know, this is our deliverance. This is our big chance. This is our destruction, whatever it is. Uh, this is, you know, Bill Gates did it. Whatever the things are, Bill Gates totally did it, guys. Just so you know, <laughs> 100%. This is, you know, I think this, this story is a really important story. The story alone, but again, this notion that it takes time to understand what these things are and to be able to capacity to sit with mystery and to ask for good questions. So that's the story. That's my take on it. Over to you, Ian McKenzie. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Matthew. I'm glad you made the link then to, to mythically literate and illiterate, which I, which I really appreciate that frame. 
sometimes I use the mythic imagination. I think it was something that either Robert Bly and others used, but, but that it is a skill. It is a capacity. And I also appreciate the, the sense of, uh, slowness to, to make meaning that meaning takes time. And, you know, this COVID thing is again, scarcely a year. I mean, not even eight or nine months, which feels like eternity, I'm sure for many. Uh, and yet the impact of which the meaning to come again, like who knows, right? And I think too around masculinity, because again, I, I do feel like so much of the, the attempts to look back and to say, well, how did we get here? Uh, I think are vital and important. And that's also why I think looking to story as a way to, to craft different, different lenses into this conversation, um, are so vital. And I'd love to invite one final story actually from you, if you're open to it. Uh, I understand that, um, you know, we just heard the story about fatherhood and understand that you came to claim your fatherhood or be, be, be sought in your fatherhood later on in life, uh, in a, in a really beautiful story. And I thought maybe we could, uh, end our conversation with that today. Yeah. Um, you're just saying it sort of brings tears to my eyes mm-hmm. and what to say about that. I guess I could, I could say this, um, when I was young, my, uh, I sort of always thought that I would be a parent because that's just what you did. And I loved kids and I thought kids were cool and it just, it just was what was happening. And then as I started to get into my 20s, I started to you know, see, I, wrote, I made a feature length documentary film about the origins of poverty and why it persists in a world with so much wealth. And that you know, movie did really well. It you know, won a, an award at the Cannes Film Festival and um, premiered, had multiple awards that it won in, in different festivals. And I spoke at the UN four times about it, but it came really strongly out of my sense of how do you bring a kid into this world? Um, this is a crazy time. Like, aren't you just going to sort of bring a kid who's just going to be a consumer? And that's really, and I was contending with that and people, you know, I just mentioned that film as not to focus on it, but just to say that I was really thinking a lot about what being a father might be and what are some of the consequences of that. And I was married for 13 years to a woman who I, not his own story, um, who had wanted children since forever. And I just was like, I don't, I'm, I don't know. It, it seemed like the, the absolute thing that I would do with her, but I just was like, I had still had questions I didn't need certainty, but I was sort of like, I'm just not sure. And people again were saying like, you'd be the best dad, but it felt to me like uh, telling a six foot eight athletic black guy, like you'd be an amazing basketball player. Like, I don't know, like maybe do I want to be, does the world need me to be that? I don't know. And so this was my questions. And so my, you know, I was inching along in my understanding and my wife um, at the time was you know, not tapping her feet, but she was understanding, but it was grinding. It was one of the things that was, you know, uh, a burr in the relationship. And where I finally got to was I'm willing to do this mysterious thing, but like, I wasn't like, yeah, I was like, I'm willing to do this thing. Yeah. And that was not the thing that that broke the relationship. There were other things that were happening. 
but the relationship ended um, seven years ago, and I'm still in the wake of that heartbreak um, and other things have happened since then in that regard. And so we never had kids. That's the story, and that's true. Now, I go back to college. Um, actually, before I go, to, go back to college, I, when I was, my mom was a massage therapist, and there were always bodywork things around when I was a kid. And I read this book called Birth Without Violence, which I found to be a really beautiful book. And I also read this book when I was young called Baby Massage. And I was like, this is amazing. I just like vaporized those books like into me. And when I was in college in upstate New York, I volunteered to do baby massage at a NICU. I can guarantee you I was the only 19-year-old there and the only man who was there. And when I was there, I saw a sign to become a sperm donor. Now, I know everyone says, like, oh, okay, I know where the story's going, but, like, hold on a second. And so I thought, oh, this sort of seems like a nice way to help someone. And so I... I'd be, I signed up to become a donor. And so after you, there was like a month where you sort of give a, leave a bunch of samples and you get interviewed and you write a few essays and doctors talk to you. And, and after like those first, I don't know, three or four weeks, whatever it was, they said to me, Matthew, you have incredible motility. We actually want to take you out of the donor pool and put you into a research pool uh, to study your motility. I mean, and you'll get paid more. And I was like, great, sure. I mean, I'm 19, I'm like, dumb. And so I was, you know, I was go driving from my college into Rochester to do something else to work, to help with these babies. And then, you know, to do this, you know, this job of, you know, masturbating into a cup to sort of like help someone, um, somehow. And, um, and the, the deal was that, you know, you were never going to know if you were, going to be chosen and you'd and you, they would never know who you are beyond the little things that sort of make it into the, the little black book and so i was like okay this is great cool um and so you know i go on and have my life and i study with you know david data and do all these things and, and you go on and do my life and i get married and my marriage ends and all these things and in the summer of 2018 my mother gets a, a ping on 23andMe saying that she has a a biological granddaughter. My mother calls me and says, you know, and I don't have kids. My brother doesn't have kids. And my mother, who hasn't had been patient in her, like, longing for grandchildren, but wasn't, you know, hadn't not mentioned it. You know, it was like, how could, this can't be. Now, of course, the, the joke had been in, I, mean, I told people about this, the, the joke had been, I tried to d donate sperm, but my sperm was too good because it was there for research purposes. So I didn't ever think that it was possible to ever have kids because, you know, it just was out of, it wasn't a possibility because I signed the thing, whatever I signed, you know, when I was 19. And so my mom, you know, tried to track down who this was and the, the person who's was the, the, her biological granddaughter was their profile was closed, but the other people who were related to her weren't. And so my mother through um, whatever power she had to summon found a picture of this girl online. And this girl looks just like me. 
and my mother called the uh, the birth mother at her office. Of course, this woman's never expecting to get this call, and says, "Sorry, you never expected this call. You don't know me, but I just got a ping from Twenty Three and Me that your daughter is my biological granddaughter, and I am absolutely convinced that she is parented." or fathered by my biological son, Matthew Stillman, does that sound possible to you? And so this, of course, now is not some random genetic freak show who's 55 years old and lives in Paducah, Kentucky. This is a real person. And, of course, this woman is, like, not prepared for this and says, "Uh, yes, that does, and I remember choosing your son affirmatively, but, like, this is not a good time to talk, and... Bah. And, um... So my mother calls me, I don't know if it was a couple hours later or the the next day, but my mother says, look at this picture. And I, you know, the story of my life, the story of anyone's life is so reliable. You know the stories that make you and have made you and you know how to tell them. And you sort of know like where the sore spots are and how to duck them or how to head into them or whatever they are. And suddenly there was this girl who was irrefutably biologically in the line. And like the stories of my life just like became, they just unfurled. Whatever friction held the stitching together, just like, it didn't make it better. And I couldn't weave it back the same way. I had to do something else new with this. I couldn't speak for days. I was so completely unspooled. And I ended up writing a letter that said, none of us planned for this. And and then you would have a saying um, nowadays about climate change that our elders never prepared us for this. And yet here we are, this thing that was never supposed to happen. And so I make no claim. You did all the work. I'm not waltzing in here thinking that I have some entitled position. I don't know if you ever wanted to know that I existed or anything. But I'm trying to make an appearance here because the mysteries have sort of seemed to have it that way. And maybe it was that my ancestors were whispering to me when I was 19 years old, saying, you don't know what sort of heartbreaks are coming, but we're going to sort of head you off of the pass in a very crazy way. Cause I could have had a job much closer that made more money. Why was I doing that? It was a very strange thing. So I don't know that that was what happened, but that might've been what happened. And so I wrote this letter that said, you know, if you're willing and you want to, and at any pace, my door's open and sort of two weeks went by, and I got back a very brief email that said thank you. And I wrote back a, a longer note. And two weeks later, sort of went by, and I wrote back another note. And then one more came. And the rhythm had been about two weeks. And each time I was getting a little bit more back. And this was to the birth mother. And then, um, 
and then no response for that last email. Now, you know, I've said this before, you know, in a science fiction movie, like you, you have people like, you know, they press a button and you're like, and suddenly the room transforms. Like, wait a minute, all this was here. Like there's all this space behind this, you know, this wardrobe, you know, what happened to my heart in this time, it wasn't made only to love this girl, but my capacity for loving was shattered open into this vast capacity. I don't know anything about this, this girl at that time. And I was like, I will do anything. I'm just on board. And so two weeks went by and three weeks went by and four weeks went by. And then in November, out of nowhere, I got a, an envelope in the mail. And it's been a long time since I was in college, but I remember what it was like to get uh, an envelope that you knew had so much consequence. And I didn't know what the envelope said when it came from this girl. But I held it and wept for a good long time before I opened it. And in the envelope, it said, what do you say to the person who has had everything to do with who you are and nothing? And I'm terrified to meet you. And if I don't meet you, I don't know what I'm going to do. And if something happened to you or something happened to me, I could never forgive myself. So if you're willing, I'd like to meet. And so in December of 2018, we had a chance to meet in New York City for the first time. And our relationship is um, still young and really tender. I'm probably properly 35th on her list of things to, to talk to and things to do and try to, you know, I'm still a huge intrusion and in like a, a geo event <laughs> in, her, in her life trying to figure out, you know, what my place is or what the place should be or anything like that. You know, if you do the etymology of the word daughter, it's a really old word and it basically is the same as far back as you can go. It sounds like daughter in pick a language. It's daughter, it's dizzer, it's a tear. It's got this D sound, it's got this T sound, it's got this R sound. And it means the same thing, like the female progeny of a, or something like that. If you go just to the other side of the oldest stuff that we can find into the Proto-Indo-European, you can find what might have been the sense of daughter being a verb. Um, and it means something like to be bent in the direction of that which affirms life. And I, I don't in any way, when people say like, oh, you're a dad and like, oh, you have kids. You know, the, the English around this is so possessive. You have and you are and you're mine. And again, like I'm really, I showed up on the scene late. She's not my daughter. I mean, I am related to her. I am her, you know, these are, these are charged, powerful things to say. I am her father. I'm not her dad. And you know, the consequence that it has in her family, of course, huge, crazy. And I'm on my knees in gratitude for these people who were not doing it for me, but I ended up being on the beneficial end of it, knowing, being, having my world undone that way. And so 
my capacity for loving the world has been changed by the existence of this person. Um, and I, one of my prayers is to keep on being bent in the direction of life. So I'm being, I pray I'm being daughtered. Mm. Well, thank you, Matthew, for that great generosity in the telling. Yeah. It's, um, I read an amazing book a couple of years ago. Well, actually, the book was not amazing, but the introduction, the not even the introduction, the dedication page completely undid me. And I actually wrote to the author before I read the book and said, your dedication page undid me. And I read this, you know, when I was still like in the hot grief part of my marriage ending. And Susan, who I was married to, was and it will always be the great love of my life. But this dedication page said to Ellen, the great love of my middle years. And like the promise of that was so amazing. And so this, this daughter is one of the great loves of my life. The great love of my middle years, certainly. Yeah. I'm just mm -hmm. teary just thinking just about her existence. A beautiful place to linger <laughs> and perhaps a beautiful place to leave the conversation for today. Yeah. Thank you. Hmm. Yeah, Matthew, thank you for the time and the the weaving of so many threads that felt somehow all marshaled together, you know, in the in the final story, as as life tends to do. So yeah, for now. Thank you so much for this time. Yeah. Thanks again for asking. I look forward to seeing you in person one of these days if we make it. Mm. I'm counting on it. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media. Also, you're invited to join the Mythic Masculine Network, a growing community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. We're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging, oriented around tending the masculine soul. It's a beautiful, intimate platform, and I'd love to have you connected. Visit themythicmasculine.com slash network to learn more.